You are now listening to the March 19th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. from Nearer My God to Thee, where we look into the background of a hymn and reflect upon its meaning in a deeper way. In the world we live in, the news of war never ends. There is always war as nations seek their own benefit and ideology. Many people have made an effort for peace, but they couldn't bring peace on earth. However, if war ever disappears and peace finally came to earth, Could we really ever live in peace? Before we seek humanity's peace, we must seek God's peace. It's because true peace first comes from peace with God. We humans were in enmity with God. God sent His Son here on earth, and through His Son's blood, He made peace with us who were enemies with Him. He who had no fault shed His blood for us sinners. We, who by faith have entered into a peaceful relationship with God through Christ, must be joyful and thankful for God's grace and love. Among the hymns we know well, there is a hymn about the joy and thanksgiving of entering a peaceful relationship with God. Let's first listen to the hymn for a moment. Here's the first verse. There comes to my heart one sweet strain, a glad and joyous refrain. I sing it again and again, sweet peace, the gift of God's love. This is a very familiar hymn. Peter Philip Billhorn wrote and composed this hymn. How did he end up writing this hymn called There Comes to My Heart? We'll find out through a drama. Peter Philip Billhorn was born in Illinois in 1865 as the second son of a wagon manufacturer. His father died at a young age, so Peter had to make wagons as a young child. 
He was also a great singer from an early age. He happily sang as he made wagons. As Peter grew up, his singing became famous among the people. People invited Peter to their parties to hear him sing. As this occurred frequently, Peter made wagons during the day and went to sing at parties or bars at night. Eventually, his brother made the wagons and Peter became a professional singer. When Peter was 18 years old, he sang at a concert hall in Chicago. Bravo, bravo. You have a great singing voice. Ah, yes. Thank you. Can I please make a request? A request? Do you want me to sing somewhere? Hmm, maybe, but that may be later in the future. My request for you is to attend a revival event that Pastor Moody and I are leading. Pastor Moody? Do you mean a church revival? But I don't attend a church. That is why I'm making a request. Peter thought the gentleman who spoke to him was strange, but for some reason he wanted to attend the revival. Peter accepted the gentleman's invitation and attended the 12-day revival. It was there he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. He then decided to become a disciple who followed Christ. Peter then poured his passion for singing and sharing the gospel into the Moody Missionary Organization. One day, a soprano singer named Ida Demarest, who was also in the praise ministry, asked Peter to compose a hymn that was suitable for his voice. After Peter received the request, he decided to compose a hymn about the peace he gained through Jesus Christ. However, even though a few months had passed, he couldn't come up with a good lyric. One day, he was invited to meet Pastor Moody in Iowa, so he got on a train with his friend and headed there. I'm expecting God to do great things at the revival in Iowa. Yes, I agree. God has brought on a new wave of revival in America. I'm so happy to see the Lord's work everywhere we go. Ah! Why did the train suddenly stop? Is something wrong? The train suddenly stopped, and Peter heard people screaming from the back of the train. Peter and his friend quickly ran to the area where the people were screaming. Outside the train window, they saw an old woman who was bleeding and dying. Peter and his friend moved the body of the old woman who was hit by the train to a nearby house. Then they returned to the train. It's so unfortunate how she bled so much and died. Yes, I wonder how that happened. Seeing her bloodstain makes me think of Jesus. Our Jesus also shed so much blood to atone for our sins. Yes, he shed all his water and blood. While talking to his friend, Peter looked at the woman's bloodstain and thought of Jesus Christ's sacrifice and grace. He couldn't write the lyrics for months, but on that train, he thought of an inspiration about peace and composed the hymn, There Comes to My Heart. First John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. God gave His only Son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice to make peace with us sinners. This is unimaginable grace. It's natural for a person who did wrong to give a peace offering and ask for peace. However, God, who did no wrong, gave a sacrifice and sought peace with us sinners. Those who have received this grace must be thankful for such a gift 
and live in joy within that peace. I hope that grace and thanksgiving will always be abundant within us. We'll end today's Near My God to Thee. I'll see you next week. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Nine Reasons to Pray and Fast. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. So what we're going to do today is I want to take you on a fast tour through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther in kind of a preview of what we're going to be reading in the days ahead. And I want to show you nine reasons to pray and fast and to set aside time for this over the next 21 days. I want to remind us of two acrostics that we use to help us when it comes to praying and fasting. Pray, P-R-A-Y, and fast, F-A-S-T. So just a quick review. When we think about prayer, think about P-R-A-Y. P, praise. So when we pray, we praise God for who he is. We thank God for what he's done. 
So as we spend time, intentional time in prayer, spend intentional time praising God, then R stands for repent. So when we pray, we pause and reflect on sin in our lives, what in our minds and our hearts and our words and our desires, our actions, what in us is not pleasing to God. We confess sin before God and we receive forgiveness from God through Jesus. For those of you who are visiting with us today and maybe you're not yet a Christian, you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus, become a follower of Jesus, this is the good news around which the whole Bible revolves, and it's the good news that unites us together as a church, the good news that God has created all of us for relationship with him. Which just pause right there. If you let that soak in, it'll knock you out of your seat. My God, the God who created the whole universe who rules and reigns over everything in the world, like this God has created you, right, where you're sitting for a relationship with him. Like this morning, before I even came here, like I, I was meeting with God. Like I had a meeting with God this morning. God. Like I was talking to God. And he was listening to me. And he's speaking to me. I'm pouring out things that are heavy on my heart to him. And he's listening to me and communicating to me. Like, and not just me. Like, it's for you. Amen. It's for all of us. We have the privilege of relationship with God. And so to, to step fully into that. Now, the problem is all of us have turned aside from God. And we've pursued other things in this world. Instead of God, we've turned aside from God and his ways to ourselves and our own ways. That's what the Bible calls sin. And our sin separates us from God and this communion with God we're designed for. And if we die in this state of separation from God, we'll spend eternity separated from God in God's judgment due our sin. But the good news of the Bible is that God has done the unthinkable to pursue relationship with us. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus has lived the life that none of us could live, a life of no sin. And then even though he had no sin for which to die, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for sin. Then three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin so that anyone, anywhere, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, you, by faith in Jesus and his love for you, can be forgiven by God for all your sin and restored to relationship with God for all of eternity, for eternal life in relationship with God. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus like this, we invite you to do that today. We invite you to do that today. And then as you walk in relationship with God, so what we're talking about here when it comes to repenting is we're still prone to disobey God. We're still prone to dishonor God in our lives. And so we come to him regularly in confession of sin, just like a, a child comes to a mom or dad and says, mom or dad, I messed up. I'm sorry for that. Forgive me for that. I don't want to do that again. That just creates closeness of relationship. That's what we're talking about here. We want to walk in close relationship with God, which means honesty before God about our sin, not trying to cover up over our sin like it doesn't exist. And why would we want to cover it up before the God who says, I'll cover it up for you by the blood of my son on the cross, like you're forgiven. So we don't have to be afraid to confess sin. So that's what we do when we repent. We confess our sin before God, receive his forgiveness. 
And we turn from that sin. That leads to A, asking God for things in our lives and asking God for things in others' lives. The thought that this God has invited you and me to come to him and say, what, what is on your heart? What do you want? What do you need? And for us to lay those things out before him, to share those things with him, and not just for our own lives, but for others' lives, knowing that God will answer what we ask according to his word, according to his power and his love for us and his wisdom that's so much higher than ours is. So we ask before God and, and then why we yield to God. We say in prayer, my life is yours. Lead me, guide me, direct me however you will. I trust you with my life. I trust you with all these things I'm asking for. That's praying. And then the other acrostic we use to help us remember what fasting involves, F, focus on God. So the point of fasting is not to look like super spiritual before other people, but to seek God, to feast on God through prayer and through his word, which leads us to A, abstain from food. So we put aside food to the extent that it's physically possible for us to do that. We put aside food for a period of time, whether it's a day or multiple days, put aside what our bodies are created by God to crave and need. And we say more than we need food for our bodies, God, we, we need your word and your presence and your help for our souls. So with these acrostics for praying and fasting, why do this? Why set aside concentrated time over the next 21 days to pray and fast like more than normal? Well, listen to what God is saying to us in his word right now as we read through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And it's all reflected in Acts. We just don't have time to dive into Acts today. So one, we pray and fast for God's protection. For God's protection. So Ezra chapter 8, this is our Bible reading yesterday. Ezra and others had rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, and it was now time for the people to journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. It was going to be a dangerous journey through foreign lands with foreign armies. And Ezra had told the king, King Artaxerxes, who had given them permission for this journey, that God's hand would be with them as they went. But now they were beginning the journey, and it hit Ezra in a fresh way that there was a lot of danger ahead. So listen to what he did. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. It says, Then I proclaimed a what? A fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves. We're going to seek God, pray for a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God, prayed to our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. See why Ezra fasted and prayed for God's protection in the journey ahead. That sounds like a good reason for you and me, to pray and fast here at the beginning of this year. Think about it. Not one of us knows what 2022 holds in our lives. So much like Ezra did, I'm calling us to pray and fast at the beginning of this year for protection in the journey ahead. For physical protection in a world still mired in pandemic. And even more for spiritual protection I don't know what's going to happen in the world or in your life or your family or this church or in my life or my family for that matter. 
in 2022. But I do know that there is a devil and demons who want to destroy your life and your family and this church and our witness in the world in the coming year. I know that. So let's pray and fast for God's protection. And second, let's pray and fast for God's provision. That's part of the picture here in Ezra 8. God, please provide everything we need on this journey. Ezra knew they needed God's help to get to Jerusalem and to reestablish their lives there. So think, as you look into 2022, what kind of help do you know you need from God this year? Then third, pray and fast in confession of sin. So this is our Bible reading today in Ezra 9, right after Ezra 8. Ezra realizes how, how God's people had, were already disobeying God's word. And listen to what the Bible says in Ezra chapter 9, verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of all the faithlessness of the returned exiles, the sinfulness gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, he's praying, oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. What a scene. Ezra falling on his face and ripping hair out of his head, confessing and mourning over sin. And it's not just him. Ezra 10.1 picks up the scene saying, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. So it wasn't just Ezra. All the people of God join in. Read these passages over the last couple of days and just prayed for this kind of praying and fasting and weeping over sin in my life. In our lives together, when was the last time you, individually, alone with God, were praying and fasting and weeping over sin like this? Has it ever happened? On your face, just agonizing over sin. When was the last time we all together were in a a gathering in the church where we're weeping over sin like this? Like, why are scenes like this so uncommon among us? Are we any less sinners than they were? Or maybe have we just grown so casual with sin and so comfortable with sin and so used to coming into a gathering before God and just kind of walking through it like it's routine and moving on with our lives. Like we need to pray and fast in confession of sin. To mourn over sin. We need God to show us how He sees sin. And to pause, spend concentrated time here 
This is exactly what we read, interestingly, in the book of Nehemiah right after this. We looked at this last September, but Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now in the month of Kislev, in the 20th years, I was in the Susa, the citadel. Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So this was after the temple has been rebuilt in Jerusalem. And he asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So listen to what Nehemiah does. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. This is sounding exactly like Ezra. And I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants that I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Watch it. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. This is a corporate picture of confession. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. not kept the commandments, statutes, rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. We'll talk more about that in the part in a minute, but do you see it here? Mourning and weeping and fasting and praying for days. The reality is months in confession of sin. God help us. We need to do this. We need to set aside a few weeks for fasting and praying and confession of sin in our lives and, and together as a church before God and His holiness and before God and His grace to see how God desires to redeem He desires to pour out his mercy on repentant people. God, bring us to fast and pray in confession of sin and in receiving mercy. And not just in our lives. So keep going. Fourth reason to pray and fast for the spread of salvation in others' lives. Like what Ezra and Nehemiah are praying for is not just their own lives, but for others to receive God's mercy and redemption, this shining picture of his salvation on them. I would just pause and ask, like, who are you praying for like this right now that they would experience salvation this year? And who in your family, who in your neighborhood, in your workplace, who are the names of the people in your sphere of influence who don't know God's love in Jesus right now? Are they worth setting aside concentrated time here at the beginning of this year to pray and fast for them? And would you set aside food at some point over the coming days and say, God, more than I want breakfast or lunch or dinner, more than I want a sandwich, I want to see them know you. Pray and fast for the spread of salvation. And then to take that even a step deeper, number five, pray and fast for people in urgent need. And this is where I'll bring in Esther. 
So it's been a while since we talked through this story. It's one of the first sermons I preached as a pastor here about the time when the king had declared that all the Jews should be killed. The king didn't know it, but his wife Esther was a Jew, and Mordecai, Esther's cousin, sent a message to her in the palace saying, all the Jewish people are about to die, and you can do something about it. But Esther, Esther doing something about it would mean risking her life to go to the king and ask him to change an edict he made. So listen to what Esther does. Esther chapter 4, verse 15. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a what? Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. What a passage. I notice the first thing Esther does in the face of urgent need. She says, we, we need to fast. We need to set aside food. We need to seek God in prayer and fasting on behalf of the Jews. And then, then I'll risk my life going to the king. So, church family, we live in a world right now where 3.2 billion people have little to no knowledge of Jesus. 3.2 billion people right now on a road that leads to eternal suffering. That's where they will go unless somebody takes some risks to take the gospel to them. So if for no other reason, let's pray and fast for these three weeks that in 2022, multitudes of them would be reached with the gospel. Let's pray and fast for the nations. Our global team has put together a prayer guide for this year. I'll put it up here on the screen right here. You can download this from that same website, mcleanbible.org slash prayer, but a, a prayer guide for the whole year you can start using during these three weeks. And basically what it does is it goes through every week. It gives you either the names of some people who used to sit in seats right next to us, but now we're living in another part of the world where it's hard to share the gospel, sharing the gospel there. And so they've sent us ways we can pray for them. And so gather your family together, your church group together, just do this on your own and pray for these individuals. Or you'll see different countries where there's great need for the gospel. You'll see partners who are doing different things that we work with as a church to make the gospel known in those places like you and I can be a part of what God's doing in Malaysia. We can be a part of what God's doing in Joseph and Jennifer's life in the Middle East by praying and fasting. So let's start doing this now. Pray and fast in the face of urgent need. And then along those lines, and I should mention other resources there, uh, stratus.earth, you can walk through with your family, look at prayer videos, praying for people in urgent spiritual and physical need, Joshua Project's Unreached of the Day, download that app, pray every day for unreached people to hear the gospel specifically. And then that leads to number six, pray and fast for success in mission. So this is the beauty of how Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are all praying, so it's not like they're just praying that God would save or redeem or protect his people and then they're sitting back on the couch and watching Netflix or playing on their phones after that. No, they're praying and they're fasting and then they're going out and giving their lives for the sake of others, saying, use my life as an answer to these prayers. So what I love about Nehemiah 2, so right after what we picked up with in Nehemiah 1, the story, Nehemiah, after months of praying and fasting, decides to go in to the king at the risk of his life, much like Esther. And Nehemiah chapter 2 says, In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took up the wine, gave it to the king. He was cupbearer to the king. 
Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, saying you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart, and you weren't allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. So that's why he says, I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Kind of butters up the king. Why should my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and his gates have been destroyed by fire? So he started to take a step, and the king said to me, what are you requesting? This is the moment. I love this. So I pray to the God of heaven. You picture it? I stand before the king. I'd shaken. He looks up. God, please help me. Please help me. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And fast forward to verse 8. The king granted me what I asked. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. Oh, would you pray and fast for this during these 21 days that God would give you a fresh boldness in following him on mission in this world? That this would be the year for many of you when you step out of casual, comfortable, cultural Christianity. Leave it behind. It's not biblical Christianity. And you start living and speaking like people around you really are going to hell if they don't believe in Jesus. That you're not just playing a game on Sundays. Like this is life or death for everybody in the world, including you. Amen. And that God's put you in people's lives to make this gospel known to them. So no matter how awkward it feels or what risk it may bring to your relationship or your job or your whatever, that their soul for eternity is worth it to you. Would you pray and fast during these 21 days for success in mission? Like high school seniors, you have one semester left with those friends right around you every day. Would you pray and fast for success in mission during these last days you have in high school? Students, with the friends you have around you in need of the gospel, what if this was the semester their lives changed for all of eternity because you were fasting and praying for them and then giving your life to share the gospel with them? And not just students, for all of us. Let's get involved in church groups where we're making disciples, where we're living together on mission, leading people to Jesus. Let's fast and pray for success in mission, knowing that it won't be easy. So that leads to number seven, pray and fast for strength amidst opposition. It's all over Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. All of them faced opposition to what God was leading them to do. From two directions, from inside of God's people and from outside of God's people. I'll show you just one passage from Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 7. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and it caused confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Mark it down. Guaranteed. You live your life on mission. You live to obey and proclaim this word. You will experience opposition from inside and from outside. We have seen this in our church family over the last year. And we should never be surprised by it. The more we press in to reaching the city with the gospel and reaching the nations, 3.2 billion people who've never even heard the gospel, the more people will arise inside and outside this church to oppose this church, to cause confusion in it. So we pray and we fast for strength and protection as we press on amidst opposition to reach more and more people with the grace of our God for the glory of our God. And in all this, number eight, number eight, we pray and fast for faithfulness no matter what comes your way. 
That's what I love about a prayer we see four times, specifically in the book of Nehemiah. Watch this. I'll put this back on the screen just a second if you're still writing it down. But Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 19. Nehemiah prays, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Then you get to the last chapter, Nehemiah 13. Remember me, oh my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Nehemiah 13, 22, remember this also in my favor, oh my God, spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Then one more time, Nehemiah 13, 30, and 31, remember me, oh my God, for good. I love what this prayer represents. This prayer represents a man who is living for an audience of one. No matter what comes his way, and no matter what anybody says about him, accusations or lies against him, he is living to please God alone. He wants to get to the end of the journey and hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you want that at the end of 2022? If God gives you breath at the end of 2022 or whenever your breath is gone before then, don't you want him to look back on your life this year and say, I remember that you were faithful to me no matter what came your way. Which this audience of one is what leads us to this last and most important reason to pray and fast here at the beginning of this year. Number nine, pray and fast to enjoy and exalt God. So I hope we've seen in the last few minutes that there are a lot of things pray and fast for. But in the end, like, please don't miss this. Listen really closely here. We pray and fast ultimately not because we need something, but because we want someone. We pray and fast ultimately because we want God. Think about my getaways with Heather or individual getaways with my kids. Sure, it's fun going places and doing things together, no question. But what's the ultimate point? To spend time just being together, right? To spend time just enjoying each other. And this is the ultimate reason to pray and fast during these 21 days. To just spend time being with God, enjoying God in a deeper way than you do now. And mark it down, I guarantee you, God is worth it. So here's what I want to invite you to do. Before we close and start moving on to anything else, I want to give you just a few minutes right where you're sitting. In this room, other locations, online, like, don't move. I want to encourage you to take a few minutes to think about. I would encourage you to write down, if you're able, either on paper or a device. Although, as soon as I say that, like, just be careful, because there's like a million distractions waiting right here. Bypass all those distractions if you're going to use a device. 
And I want to encourage you to think about, maybe write down your plans for a spiritual getaway over the next three weeks. If you want, you can go to mclanebible.org slash prayer and sign up there, commit to the 21 days of prayer and fasting and start thinking through that checklist. But I'm going to put up here just four questions on a screen for you to, to consider. And not just you, me. I'm going to spend time doing the same thing. One, what will be your daily routine for concentrated prayer during these days? So over the next three weeks, what would, what would concentrated, like more than normal time in prayer with God look like for you? And then second, what will be your plan for fasting? Again, there's tons of resources on that website to, to help you dive in deeper, but, but are you maybe fast a day a week, maybe multiple days in a row, or maybe, well, just as the Lord leads. What would your plan be for fasting? Third question, who can you share and possibly do the above with? So just start to think through, okay, who, who am I going to share I'm writing down here with, maybe invite them to go on this journey with me, even if theirs looks a little different. Or maybe some things are the same. And then fourth question, just to start thinking through, what are you going to pray and fast for? So I've obviously given you nine specific things, so there's, there's a good list. But maybe to take that a step deeper into your personal life, like are there specific things or people Requests that you're going to pray and fast for over the coming days. That's a lot to think about in the next few minutes. The whole point is to get started now. So I want to give you just a few minutes between you and God, where you're sitting, and then I'll lead us into what's next here at Tyson's. Other location pastors will lead you into what's next at other locations. But for now, you just go for it. And I'm going to do the same up here, just between you and God, me and God, what is this spiritual getaway going to look like for you? So you're planning that getaway. What is these next three weeks? How are you going to well, answer these questions? So you spend time between you and God, and then I or other location pastors will take it from there. Protection while we sleep We pray for healing For prosperity We pray for your mighty hand To ease our suffering And all the while You hear each spoken need Yet love is way too much to give us lesser things Cause what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleep? 
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. He heard the word when it reached him. Here's his response of humility. He gets off his throne. He throws his robe down, covers himself with sackcloth, and sat on ashes. This sign of repentance and humility. I believe he really did repent. As we see, he proclaims to the people this message of repentance. Verse 7. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And then let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. Folks, there are all kinds of ideas these days in the church about what true repentance looks like. Do you know what it looks like? Have you truly repented? Here we have an Old Testament example that Jesus proclaims in Matthew. And notice there are four elements here in this example of repentance. First of all, a visible humbling and mourning over sin. In this proclamation, we see him proclaiming a fast for man and beast. Verse 7, verse 8, they should be covered with sackcloth. Again, this outward symbol of a changed heart and not the reverse. But true repentance doesn't stop here. Look at, he says, and let men call earnestly, middle of eight, on God. Let them call, the word is mightily, let them call mightily on God. Intense prayer upon God. And notice there's a turning from sin. But before that, notice they're calling earnestly on the Lord to save them from this judgment, which they have been convicted of through the preaching of Jonah. And that's what the Lord says in Romans chapter 10. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. The Ninevites called on him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then shall they call upon him if they haven't believed this belief? How then shall they believe if they haven't heard? they got to hear to believe. How then shall they hear without a preacher? That's a caruso, a proclaimer. And how shall they preach if they're not sent? Jonah was sent. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. And he goes on, however, speaking of Israel, they didn't heed the glad tidings. Where Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Jonah spoke God's word. They believed as evidenced by their repentance. You see that? He says, call on God earnestly. Do you want to know if you've really repented? When you were saved, did you call on God earnestly? Or did you raise your hand and say, sounds good to me? Did you call upon the name of the Lord? Whoever will call upon him will be saved. And let each turn from his wicked ways. Repent. The word is shuv in Hebrew. It means to turn, to repent, relent. 
It's used often in the Old Testament to speak of a turning. And a biblical repentance, as we see here, is a turning to God from sin. And genuine belief in Christ produces genuine repentance. They are two sides of the same coin. It is not a work. God grants repentance. God grants faith. It is not a work. It is a response to the powerful, living, and active Word of God. And notice, lastly, we see a recognition here of God's right to judge. Turning from sin, the violence wicked from their hands, call on God, turn from their sin. Let me go back to that, folks. If you repented and you didn't turn from your sin or have this desire, Lord God, save me from my sin. I'm a sinful man. Maybe that's not genuine repentance. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we may not perish. The Ninevites were not given, as far as we can see, information concerning salvation. They were giving information concerning judgment. And they responded. They repented. They acknowledged God's burning anger, his right towards them. They didn't say, oh, God couldn't be angry at me. He's a loving God. They recognized their sin and they cried out to him. We see genuine repentance here. They mourned over their sin before a holy God. They called upon his name. They turned to him from their wicked ways, recognizing his right to judge. That's a picture of genuine repentance. And it all begins with they believed in God. They heard the message. The Ninevites repented at Jonah's preaching. That's a summary. Matthew 12. Is that not what Jesus said? He said, the men of Nineveh, verse 41, Matthew 12 shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it. They're going to be on the judging side, the men of Nineveh. And we know from Scripture that the saints will judge the world. They were saved. And they're going to stand against this unbelieving generation of Christ's time who rejected him. And it says they shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They repented. This is what biblical repentance looks like. There is a mourning over sin. There is a crying out to God. There is a turning from that sin, crying out, and there is acknowledgement of his right to judge. The Ninevites did that. Now, on a side note, the Greek word used here in Matthew 12, Jesus uses is metanoia. It means literally to change your mind. Now, there's some bad teaching out in churches these days. Since we're talking about repentance, I need to share They have reduced repentance simply to just a change of mind. That's it. Saying that's all it means as long as someone changes their mind, they've repented. And folks, this couldn't be further from the truth because a change of mind will produce a change of behavior. The Ninevites changed their minds based on the word of God, but also it produced a change of behavior, a humility, a conviction of sin. And I want to remind you that salvation is a work of God. God grants repentance. Romans chapter 2. Or do you think lightly of the riches of kindness or forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? 2 Timothy 2.25. Paul says, if perhaps God might grant them repentance. And true repentance, as we will see as we close here, will bring about a change of life, of an action. So verse 10, we see what God does here in response to the Ninevites. We saw Jonah's repentance, he obeys. 
We've seen the repentance of the Ninevites. They turned to God. Wicked, vile people. Read Nahum 3. I'm not even going to read it with the kids here. They turned to God and they're saved. They repented. Now what happens when God sees this? Verse 10, when God saw their deeds, notice he saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring on them. He did not do it. So then God observed their wicked ways, that they turned from those. They repented. He turned, same word, he repented, but not from sin. He turned and relented from what he declared he would do, and he didn't do it. God has declared that he will judge you for your sin, and he will relent from that declaration if you turn to Christ repenting of your sins. Now, there's a couple things to chew on as we finish here, but let me point out these things here. First of all, God didn't relent until there was true repentance. He didn't relent until he saw their deeds. They were an evidence of a genuinely changed heart. And that's what Apostle Paul says in Acts 26, and I'll read a portion of this as he gives his testimony to King Agrippa. We're not reading the whole thing, but he says in verse 19 of Acts 26, Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also in Jerusalem, and then throughout the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. A genuine repentance will manifest itself in different deeds. Genuine repentance. You're going to change. I'm not saying we're saved by works. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And he grants repentance. But if it's genuine, you're going to turn. Genuine faith in Christ will produce genuine repentance. They're two sides of the same coin. They're required for salvation. They're tied together. Jesus said that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. Salvation is from the Lord. And one last thing I want to point out is that God declares eternal calamity and judgment and he will pour out his wrath on sin and sinners. There is the terrifying expectation of judgment for those who die in their sins. The gentleman I shared about who passed away last night didn't trust Christ, didn't repent of his sins. He is in terrible, eternal peril. Those who died on that plane crash, if they didn't trust Christ, they are in terrible, eternal peril. And if you haven't repented of your sins, you are in peril. God is gracious. He will relent. He does declare what he will do, that he will judge you eternally, but he will relent if you repent. Now, in the Old Testament, they had a shadow of what would bring their salvation, fulfilled in the person of Christ, who died for our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to God. So then, what does true repentance look like? It is a change of mind brought about by a belief in God via his word, which produces a genuine change, a turning to God from sin. And we see in the Ninevites' case, there is a mourning over sin, a humble mourning because of sin, an earnest calling upon God, a recognition of God's right to judge, tied up in the context of faith in what God has declared in his word. Friend, where are you today? Has the word of God convicted you concerning God's judgment and his right to judge? 
when you sin, you sin against a holy God. And he has declared your calamity because of your sin. Your calamity is coming, but God will relent. If you trust in Christ, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, cry out to him for salvation, he will relent. He will save you.
buried he carried my sins far away rising he justified We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.